Hello, viewers and listeners. Welcome back to this episode of Slaves to the Algo. I'm delighted to continue my conversation with Unmesh Parthasadi on how data and AI is being used to transform the world of sport. In the last episode, we talked a lot about how this is being used to improve the performance of players on the field of play, how there was a difference between, let's say, using data and the magic of the moment. In this episode, we're going to talk about another way in which data and AI is transforming sport which is what is happening off the field of play. How is data being used to determine the value of, of players, of the people who are actually providing that um, entertainment, if you will? And how is it being used to actually engage the people who are paying for this whole thing, which is the fan, which is you and I? So welcome back to the show, Anmish. And I'm really, I think we could have multiple episodes and maybe we will. Let me just jump straight into this one, which is, um, Everybody talks about the money ball moment of how coaches use this whole thing to spot scout talent. Earlier, again, it was all naked eye scouting. You didn't know what was going on. Now it seems that this whole thing has become a science. So walk us through the science of how teams get built, how players get picked, how data is being used. Uh, so, especially thank you very much for having me on again. Uh, it was great fun last time. Um, uh, probably spoiler alert for, for your listeners and viewers that this is going to be a bit more uh, sort of a bit more economics oriented rather than psychology. It's going to be more from the mind than the heart in the next half an hour. So please bear with us. Uh, we mean well. But I like the way you sort of frame this in terms of, you know, uh, the, 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 as I was saying the last time around, any value proposition is about creating and capturing value. If you don't do both, you haven't got a proposition. Uh, and then to situate what you just said about the athlete and the fan on either ends, right? Athlete creates the value and fan captures the value or the fan's attention creates the currency to capture the value. So that, that, that's extremely well-structured. Um, let, let's break it down to two different parts. Let, let's talk about first about fans. I think we can come to the auction piece later because a lot's been spoken about it. But I think, I think we are in a, in a situation in this decade post-COVID. And the, the last decade was all about fan engagement, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I believe this decade is, it is, not will be, is all about fan inclusion. Now, the difference is that fan engagement at its core, and I've, probably wouldn't be popular not for the first time for saying it, was very patronizing. Come here, child, sit on my lap, let me tell you a story, <laughs> right? From a transaction analysis perspective, it was a very much parent-child, right? Fan inclusion in going with the times that we are, whether it's Me Too, Black Lives Matter, whatever the case might be, is an equal relationship, right? Uh, and it goes back to the point, I think Julian Doherty spoke about, around data being transparent, the, the ethics of data and the inclusiveness of data. I think that's a very important part. Inclusion to my mind has got three different elements to it. One is the fan as a consumer of, mm -hmm. of, of content. The other is the fan as a customer of their you know, loyalty or not to a sporting brand, be it a federation, league, event, athlete. And you've spoken about you know, loyalty and incentives in, in your previous podcasts. Uh, I think the third, to my mind, which is the largest piece in this decade, is the fan as a citizen. So fan as a consumer of content, fan as a customer of products and services, and fan as a citizen who actually is seeking a return on the investment made from tax money into sport of different kind, be it electricity, water, real estate, whatever the case might be, as opposed to pieces. So that's my sort of second point in terms of where we are in terms of the use of data off the pitch. And then the last piece really is uh, the, 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 the size of sport uh, over the last two decades has become so large relative to where it was 
you know, 20 years ago. And you speak about the mindset change, right? In your previous podcast, of how you got to leave it behind and move forward to a whole new world. We are in that decade where everything has to change. The entire plumbing has to change. And I'm very thankful for data and technology and the kind of you know, companies in the space that you guys are in are there. Uh, so three points, fan engagement and fan inclusion, three segments within fan inclusion, and then the whole idea of data actually helping sport realize a far bigger impact at a societal level uh, through data, which would not have been possible even five years ago in terms of sensibility, openness, and you know, solutions as the case might be. But I'll stop there and take a sense check. Well, I think that's a great thing. And, you know, but uh, when you talk about the idea of moving from fan engagement to fan inclusion, and then you talked about the fan as a consumer of content and as a person who buys other stuff that you do, I, I just like the thing. It is an unequal relationship. They're basically, today the fan is paying for that. They've been taken for granted. You sell them the T-shirt. You sell them the, you know, uh, rights for whatever it is that you're watching on streaming. The price of the, all that is going up. Where do you think, fan inclusion will be, how do you think it'll be different and how do you think data will play a role in making, moving from engagement, treating the fan as a consumer to inclusion, which means you're making the fan a part of the club, if you will, or part of the federation or part of the sport. Could you give us a few examples of where you think it's headed? Yeah. So I think the immediate one which comes to mind is the growth of uh, women's sports, uh, especially at a team level rather than an individual level. If you look at football, and you know what the FA has done in the UK with, with women's football, which you know USA began with Mia Hamm back in the 90s, the soccer moms in the previous decade. I think I think cricket's turn has come, um, and that that goes back to the inclusion piece at a much larger level, right? That's one. Secondly, I think I think um, you know just as we have the Paralympics and the Special Olympics, there's going to be another level altogether of differently abled, uh, which is a huge area of of, of untapped potential off the pitch. There's a lot needs to happen off the pitch for us to realize the benefits on the pitch. That's my second point. I think my third point is mental health. Fortunate to be part of the Go Sports Foundation in, in Bangalore, which you know, basically plugs in the Olympic pathways between where sort of you know, governments stop and private institutions start and the sort of space in the middle. And the focus for us around differently abled and the gender issue and mental health has become more and more and more important uh, because it is an off-pitch societal uh, variable, which is very binary. You know, if we solve that, there's a huge impact that you can actually have through sport as a medium to actually solve for inclusion, which is very, very different, be it gender or ability or mental health. So let's come back to the idea. You talked about uh, women's sport, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it started with football. I can see it now is beginning to happen with cricket. Um, uh, frank, frankly, some of the women's cricket is far more interesting to watch than the men's cricket. Uh, but but again, you're going back to the idea of fan inclusion. Is this because fans are demanding it? What exactly is the thing? Because, I mean, I can't believe that administrators are ahead of the curve in, the, in terms of this, right? Typically, they tend to be behind the curve. So where is the... That is the fan in all of this. Are you saying that fans are demanding it? That's why it's happening? I think it is in the time that we live in. So there's no silver bullet. There's no univariate equation. There's a multivariate equation. Um, so I think you can start it from, and rather than going sort of, you know, consumer, customer, citizen, we can go citizen, customer, consumer. Uh, because citizenry fundamentally is a right. Uh, you know, customer has a discretionary element where I do not need to spend my time or money or my reputation with you. And consumers are very intuitive, it's in the moment. So it's very hard to sort of police from an economic perspective, right? I think we're in a time where transparency is very important, which goes back to Jillian's point as well, right? 
I think we're at a time when ethics are very, very important because you know we haven't had economic growth for over a decade uh, at a global level. You know, post 09, 07, 09, we haven't really had the kind of bull run which has impacted large economies, emerging markets, and uh, mature markets in a way which it did through from sort of I would say the early 90s through to 2010. Uh, so, so I think that that's the I think the first thing to keep in mind is context, right? Uh, the second thing to keep in mind is I think um, it's reached a stage where one can address the problem. The means to address the problem one is defining the problem, which is the context we're in. The other is about the addressability of the problem. You know, so Pengong speaks about this ridiculous problems of the world. You know, a lot of people say, Umesh, what do you do? I said, look, I am basically looking to engage a billion fans in the emerging markets. That's fundamentally what my raison d'etre is. And then they say, oh, okay, but why education and why gaming? I said, because education is no longer, dis it's, it's no longer mandated, it's discretionary. Learning is discretionary, right? You've spoken about, I think uh, one of your previous speakers spoke about the, the, the lack of completion rates in Coursera. Yep. That if you don't engage the individual as a fan of learning, forget about a fan of sport, there is no reason why the relevance is going to lead to reach, is going to revenue. So, so one is about citizenry, and hold your thought, you've got that smiling uh, mirth on your face, hold, hold. One is about the context we're in, citizenry. The other is around customers who can walk and make their choices without you knowing it, although now you do know it. And the third is the magic of sport, which makes this consumption extremely social. This morning I woke up and I told my 81-year-old mother, she said, did you sleep well? I said, no, I slept at one o'clock at night. I was watching the under-19 final in the Caribbean. Oh, who won? She had no idea whether it was India or not, whether it was England or not, who won? So societal is a right as it is a citizen. Customer is a discretionary dynamic, which we have never faced in sport. And the consumption piece has such a large value to engage and connect at a time when there's a lot of pain in the world. But I'll stop that. Yeah, and I think um, I, I'd probably like to do a, a separate conversation around the fan and the, the citizen aspect of this thing. But the reason I was smiling is because, you know, you referred to so many of my podcasts that I can see at least you listen to many of them. I hope the other viewers have been as kind to me. Uh, but to come back, I think I'm, I'm just want to focus on this. I have a I have a contention on my, you know, you talked about a billion fans. I believe and I like the way you started this when you said sit on my lap and watch this stuff. I still believe federations, broadcasters treat fans with a degree of contempt. And what I mean by that is something. I can only buy a package. I mean, you look at, look at the way the world of commerce is going, that I want to watch something. I want to watch it in the moment. I want to kind of spend some time in that. I have unbundled content. Um, I, I, I can do all of that stuff. Today, it is practically impossible in the world of sports rights for the fan to not have to pay a hefty package to do with all kinds of restrictions in order to be able to simply engage with something that they want to either in the moment or over a period of time. Another way in which you do it is, you know, this whole thing about when you talked about the fan as a consumed customer where, you know, it's the same thing. Sell me more t-shirts, sell me more of this merchandise and memorabilia. And there's very little really attempt to treat the fan except as a fount of money to fund the game. Is this going to change at all in the new world? So I... That is, you take commerce, and I'm going to make this point one more, just one. They treat the people, now the customer, as somebody who has the complete reins in the customer's hands, whether it's, whether it's video, whether it's commerce, whether it's anything else, the customer is in control. 
in sports that's not the case the fan is not in control i'll make three points at each of which are going to posit a counter argument to your view not your opinion right because i think that opinion is guilty of putting a, a, an economic and industrial basis to what is actually a consumer sentiment as a fan and and that there's a, there's a there's a dichotomy there and i'll explore that further that's my first point my second point is bezos began amazon in 1992 30 years ago right the whole notion of fan as a customer is less than a decade old however like most emotional things be it music be it gaming be it sport even education i think increasingly once you cross the chasm you know from the early adopter early majority it 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 becomes a hockey stick extremely fast so the ability of these genres to actually make up for uh, let's just say suboptimal behavior from the past uh is going to be extremely hard, extremely fast and therefore i'm very bullish about that in this decade even pre covid right that's my second point my third point is i don't believe <clears throat> that federation leagues and event promoters deserve the the criticism and cynicism that they get nowadays because i think they need to be commended for creating properties like the champions league right creating crop properties like uh like the english premier league like the ipl which was out of thin air and which has become such a large part of our social culture remember 2007 8 when when ipl happened and the naysayers saying nahi chalega yaar nahi hoga how will this happen you know bowlers will get hit for six the most fascinating part today about t20 is not the batting it's the bowling you know so the whole game has changed for the first time the shortest format of the game has made it no longer a batsman's game but a bowler's game no absolutely but i'm again uh, and i'm glad to hear you say that you know that it will evolve and suddenly when it takes off it will change very rapidly and i hope that that's the case and i'm not against uh, the fact that you know and i completely agree with you that the new formats and the new ways they've created excitement has been fantastic for the fans i just feel that the pace of change i take your point about commerce being 30 years old but the pace of change is still driven in a very very antiquated view of the of of, of this by the season by it in a country etc etc and there may be good reason for it but i do believe that uh, uh, that fans deserve an even better deal than simply having to fork out more and more money um you know for for these packages if you will and i i take your point that some somewhere that this will change but i'm going to come back i mean you do you think that you will start to see i mean you know everybody talks about their social engagement with fans i have a I mean, man united famously has more fans than their footballing performance today justifies there's lots of things like that that are going on right and then but do you see actually a situation where the industry will start to engage fans as individuals do you think they'll start to do individual fan profiling um you know do predictions that are very very relevant to me i only want to know about post sportsman and what's happening do you think those kind of things are going to come so so let me sort of pick up on what you initially began before putting the question you know napoleon famously said people come together because of two reasons fear or interest and he also famously said a dog is a man's best friend for the same sentiment a lot of what you're saying bezos and amazon was good because they were outside the system they were not a walmart or a marks and spencers so that's very important i think the institutional bases of organizations uh have a lot to do with how much and how fast they can innovate and one has to ex- one has to sort of keep that in mind that's my point my first point and then how i sort of bridge your question about 
you know, our federation leagues and clubs going to uh, target the fan, I think it's going to be the other way around. Uh, there may have been economic interest for people to be together and not necessarily target fans because sport historically was a B2B2C business. You know, I do a deal with <clears throat> a large FMCG brand and then I bring them audiences because brands never buy content, they buy, buy audiences that consume the content. The big thing which has changed in the last, uh, I would say, four to five years, and especially through COVID, is the concept of the player publisher, you know, which my first boss, Peter Hutton, talks about at Facebook. That's where the dynamic is going to come from. When a Virat Kohli or a Ronaldo can speak to over 100 million people, when the technology allows you to, for him or her to be able to segment by language uh, and by economic class and by choice of platform for which, you know, the, 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 the tools are there today, and for their lawyers to work out a way whereby they retain rights on a player perspective, that's when things will change. Because that is such a seismic impact on the, the collective bargaining model, as they call it, as opposed to the individual bargaining model. So rather than looking at it on the demand side, where why can I treat a fan as a customer, which in the collective bargaining, the whole value of the proposition was the sum of the parts. When you look at it from the supply side of who's creating the value, going back to my point about creating and value. You think value. the sportsman, and that's an interesting point, sorry to interrupt, but when you talked about the power of Virat Kohli or, or, or Ronaldo, um, you look at somebody like Ashwin who runs his own YouTube channel and like, you know, has an interesting point of view that he expresses in that. Do you think that this whole individual sportsman to a set of individual fans is really going to be the big dynamic of the future? I think it's going to be a, it's going to be the next layer of fan inclusion. Because and it comes from gaming. In gaming, there's on Twitch you have this notion of bits, where if you're a caster, and you know bits are effectively you know small changes as well, right? If I'm throwing bits at you, you'll call out my name, which for me is like it's a, it's a digital autograph, right? It's you know so, so how is that any different from Ronaldo or Shah Rukh Khan saying, okay guys, let's talk? It is a one-on-one -on -one conversation, no moderation. You know, no filtering of press conferences, nothing at all. It is fundamentally inclusive, right? And that's and going to be a fundamental the democratization of, of a fan engagement in a way, right? Because now the fan, actually, I mean, yes, we all love the sport, but we have love the sportsman even more as a fan. So you're now enabling this one-to-one -one conversation in some ways. Yes, and, and to my mind, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I don't think it's an either-or. I think it's more about the players actually helping. If you look at what the NBA players have done for the, for, for, for the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, if it hadn't happened during COVID and happened, had, had happened at the height of the NBA season, they wouldn't have had the time. The amount the NBA 2K has grown through gaming and the players themselves playing or Formula One or EPL because of COVID, the game and the federation, the league has benefited a lot more than the individual players. So my point is, it's not a them and us situation between the players and the federations, which was the case in individual sports, you know, recall tennis, recall golf now, famously with Greg Norman. That's not going to happen in team sports. And my third point is, the player self-life in a team sport is far more sensitive and risky than an individual sports. And therefore, the player always knows that he or she is dispensable. And that makes them a very different kind of a publisher than a pay TV operator who's got all the content you want to watch. So as I'm saying, you know, it, it's a complex piece. You, know, you break it down in terms of supply side, demand side, creating value and capturing value. And this whole notion of inclusiveness, which is across your citizen, customer, and consumer.
which brings me to i think the second part of what you wanted to talk about about the, off the pitch which is the way the economics of uh, let's say how teams or player you know assemble players and how we are scouting and all of that and again i'm going back to the theme of what we do how do we use data and ai to do that right we've just finished finished the um, uh, end of the english football you know the the european football transfer season in january we have the ipl auction coming up moneyball famously started this whole thing uh, it seems to me that uh, on the one hand there is no economics because all this stuff is blowing blown up and like the numbers are bigger and bigger on the other hand there seems to be way more science that people believe underlying these numbers and to how they actually influences right um, but but how do you i mean you know you talked about how people are being how scouts are finding people based on using data and certain formulas and so on could you walk us through some some big changes that you're seeing about how data is being used in the actual attraction of talent so so as as sport has got commercialized it's also become industrialized from a corporate structure perspective you and i have worked in large corporate corporate companies corporate structures and corporate environments what is the singular basis of success and continued growth and professional escalation in a in a large organization question for you what is the, what is the, the biggest driver is the ability to not get it wrong which is different from getting it right interesting right fundamentally if you don't get it wrong and get it kind of right most of the time you're fine the big use of of data i believe in the ipl or the transfer window either side of covid when player rights are growing where distribution is growing where the old model of pay television is beginning to get disenfranchised is the use of management to say that we didn't get this wrong so it's more around managing the downside then finding the gems because don't forget your outlay as a share of total is really going up today you've got a 100 million dollar you got a, you got 100 crores or 70 crores is 10 million dollars on an auction right at a time when two companies have bid 100 million dollars whatever a billion dollars if not more compared to the Rajasthan Royals which was sold for 68 million dollars 15 years ago so the economic risk of getting it not right in terms of fiduciary accountability of the management is today at a different magnitude than it was even 5 years ago that's interesting because uh, it seems that uh, both in football and in cricket definitely where you have these auctions and in the nba there's a lot of premium on getting in those one or two big things so that seems to be a premium on getting it right but you're actually making an interesting point which is that most of these are about not getting it wrong uh and that's that, there's a bit of a divergence out there because when you get let's say glen maxwell to play for your team and you pay him a, a lot of money that's uh, you're taking a risk on i'm making the right thing uh and um, you know there's the same thing about let's say when man united signs ronaldo or you know people go out there and say we psg signs messi so how do you you know do you really believe that people are more focused on not getting it wrong no i'm uh, but that's not meant as a criticism i think that's good that goes back to my point about sanctity as an organization we are responsible to shareholders as an organization which is responsible to society you've got to get a lot of things pretty much right unfortunately what happens in this you know sort of clickbait driven media of today is that you only talk about messi's deal right 
or you occasionally talk about, you either talk about big stuff, which is easy for people to understand, the LCM multiple, right? The lowest common multiple, right? Or you're talking about sort of innovation, Nate Silver, all that kind of stuff. The bulk of the world actually exists between these two extremes. And, and, that, and that's, that's my point. True. You look at Fenway Sports Group and the way they've done it in baseball, the way they've done it in Liverpool. It's always, you know, I, I get the fact that they are trying to say, we won't bid for players over 30 or whatever it is because we have a certain formula that we follow. Uh, but I guess um, what's interesting is that you're saying is that are you trying to say that most clubs and most of these are now focused on not getting it wrong? No, I don't, I don't know it's a leading question. My point is about not getting it wrong most of the time means that you're pretty much getting it right much of the time. But my point is that you're, you're entering a phase where the economic stakes and the societal stakes are so large that you have to be pretty sure that you're maintaining the sanctity of, of your position and data helps you do that. That's my argument. So how does wasn't the, data the case help? 10 years ago. How does the data help? Let's perhaps get into that. How does the data I'll help? give an example. Yeah. I'll give, I, was, I was in a London newsroom when the Glazers took over Manchester United. Right? 20 years ago. Oh my God, $700 million in debt. It's a bargain. You know, people don't realize that Ed Woodward actually had 100 people in Buckingham Palace Road in London creating value in terms of licensing of the Man, Man U brand across, as you said, to the other fan base in the other countries, predominantly in the Asia Pacific, which created very nice annuities of income, which actually securitized the entire business. So th that's debt, right? Which is a very different risk profile to investment as an equity holder, which is, you know, whether it's, you know, Fenway or whether it is uh, CBC or whether it is the, the going cuts. But my point is you're fundamentally entering an age where sport is an industry. And it is bringing in institutional investors, whether it's Redbird or CVC or the large Indian institutions, in a manner such that the numbers involved are not necessarily you know, pocket money or family office or personal account. They're a very large place to be had. And there's an expectation of both commercial return and societal return. Hence, you know, Lucknow has gone to Lucknow and Ahmedabad has gone to Ahmedabad. My point is, you've got to situate the player valuation question in the context of the larger institutional basis that is maturing the industry for sport. That's my point. I'm not saying that you know getting it right at an auction is not important. I'm, I'm saying that it is far more important to make sure that you do get a series of wins, the collective value of which is much bigger. It's a portfolio and, play as opposed to a, um, as opposed, it, it, it's, it's how you build a team as opposed to having you know, Mike Tyson because it's in the individual driven uh, fight night. And, and and coming back into that, perhaps that thing when you and I get the point about like, you know, it's a portfolio that you're trying to build. And, you know, if you have to in a team sport, it's either seven, eight or a roster of 10 or 12 people. If it's basketball, it's about 25 or 30 people. If it's football or cricket, um, how do you actually use data now to make sure that you can balance that portfolio? I mean, you know, can you give us a couple of ways in which people are thinking about it, maybe for the audience, you know? How does, like, let's say, a team decide on an IPL strategy, an auction strategy? So, I think the multiple You've questions. You've been in some of those rooms, I'm let, sure. Let me, let me give you examples rather than look to answer the question, because I think there are multiple questions there from different point of view, which are not necessarily consistent. Let me give you some examples, right? Messi's transfer to PSG, right, had multiple dimensions to it. Right, it was more about bringing PhDs to the mainstream. It was more around using using Messi over and beyond where we are. It's a bit like Pele playing for Cosmos at the end of his playing time. That's one dynamic, one example. Let's look at uh, City Football Group, 
which is, you know, the Abu Dhabi-backed piece, which owns Melbourne, Mumbai FC, Manchester City, all that kind of stuff. A very different kind of a business, looking at franchises in a single sport across both emerging and mature markets. Let's look at that example, right? Um, and let's let's look at something which is, like, let's look at, you know, Fenway and, and Liverpool and that kind of stuff. Again, sticking within football. The motivations for all three are very, very different. Or conversely, they're not the same, right? It's not necessarily about what is the singular value of a sole asset. You've got to contextualize the purchase in terms of where does the organization want to go in the next five to eight years? It is no different from a big acquisition if you are a corporate. I think Unilever has a similar problem at the moment, right? It is no different because the size and scale of the expectations, the heterogeneity and the complexity of the decisions that senior management has to make is so complex. Well, it's not, I wouldn't say it's so complex. It is not as simple as it used to be a decade ago. And that's a good thing because that professionalizes off the pitch decision-making wherein you work out saying, this is my core asset. This is my portfolio of assets. This is where I want to take my brand over the next five years. And this is fundamentally my promise to society because the expectations also of sporting institutions now are going way beyond match day and you know investor return and commercial return and all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying, I think we have situated this conversation like in the previous conversation, you know, when you're talking in the previous podcast about fan inclusion, about what is the societal context. I think one has to you know, situate this conversation around the use of data in sport for off-pitch decision-making in the context of the expectations of shareholders, of fans and commercial partners, and of society. And that's a very important starting point. Fair enough. Um, I think um, if I were to bring that down into a tactical level and try and talk about, let's say, a particular auction strategy uh, and the IPLs coming up uh, as an example, yeah. uh, how, do you, uh, how do people actually sit in... I mean, I understand the context that, you know, there's so much money to be done and there's a certain shareholder return and all of that. But how do you... You're sitting with a purse... And you are sitting with, uh, uh, you know, a portfolio that you need to manage. Yeah. Uh, how are people actually using data to manage this portfolio or to construct this team, which is a portfolio of assets in a way? Yeah. Any examples so again, that you think of, like, I, I, different I, ways in which people have done it? Yeah, I, I can talk about it more from a, uh, you know, from what I see, what's in the public domain, rather than anything which is sort of privileged and, and confidential, right? I, I think there are three variables. I think one is very important in terms of what is success for you. That's important. Do you want to you want to win? You want to be a finalist? You want to be in the playoffs? That's my first piece. I think that's very very important. If you look at Delhi Capitals, you know their play has really been, from my perspective, about not necessarily winning, but being in the last four, being in the last two. I know that's a very important piece to have, right? Which is very different from a CSK and an MI, where nothing short of the trophy is important. From that, that's the first point to keep in mind, right? I think the second point is. I think, and you mentioned Maxwell, right? And the RCB acquisition. I think we are at a time where in the, in the context of the IPL, I think we're in a space where there are a lot of uh, parts in the equation which can be fulfilled by non-premium assets, right? If you look at Sunrisers and their entire bowling strategy, entirely Indian talent, entirely Indian talent. You know, so they're focused on that saying, okay, and we'll spend the bulk of our money on a Warner and a Besto and, 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 and a Williamson. So I think that that's a second piece to look at in terms of what is your side of play? What is your philosophy of where do you think you're going to, you know, sort of put your chips in which numbers, but then the rest also gets taken care of. I think the Sunrisers piece is very different to a Delhi Capitals, to a, which is very different to a CSK and an MI. 
and then sort of RCB and, and RR are sort of quite unique in the way they behave. Right, that's my sort of second point. So one is more in terms of what is your definition of success work backwards from that. The second is what is your style of play and therefore how do you mix and match? Again, going back to my point about portfolio, low beta, high beta, as opposed to you know, confidence intervals and ability to impact, right? That's, a, that's our second point. And my third point is what is the opportunity cost that you wanna walk away from? And that would be a big factor actually in the thing because at some point, everything becomes um, something that doesn't fit with your strategy or your, your, uh, your idea of affordability, right? In fact, that'd probably be the hardest thing if you're sitting in the auction room, would I be right in saying that? It would be, and, but that's what you have to guard against because the most obvious thing, uh, classic poison chalice, winner's curse as the case might be. Keep in mind, there are 10, 10 teams this time, not eight. But the talent pool has not gone up that much. Yep, true. The talent pool has not gone up 25%. So you've got to keep it in mind. So, you know, it's more around definition of success, institutional basis and how we play. You know, Guardiola is very different from, uh, you know, from, from, from Liverpool. And then the third is opportunity cost. When do you walk away? It's like classic negotiation, right? When do you give the pen? And when do you say, you know what? This is not for me. I'm, I'm done. I know. And that's a, it's a very nice framework in which uh, you put it. And again, Unmesh, uh, I think we could talk about this probably for a few more days and we'll probably come back for some more <laughs> episodes on, on some of these things. Um, but uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I also did probably want to come back and do a separate episode on how you're seeing all this playing out in gaming, in, in immersive media, all of that. I mean, probably do a separate episode on that one. Uh, but it's an absolute pleasure to be chatting with somebody who knows... Um, I think the full range of the of the sports economy, right, from the societal aspects, all the way to the commercial and the shareholding, right down to actually what happens in the field of play, and that's um, a very rare that you get somebody uh, who can span that entire spectrum. So thank you very much for being on the show, and thank you for very much for sharing your both for, for your views on how data is being used both on and off the field, and we'll have you back for some more episodes. No, thank you. You've been very generous uh, with your time and your compliments. Uh, but no, this has been fun. Uh, and I, you know, I, I wish you well. I've been, as you, as you would have guessed, I've been following the Slave to the Algo podcast on my bike for the last sort of months since we began speaking about this. And I'm, I'm, oh, I'm also, as an as a industry professional across GEMS, I'm very thankful that you know, your podcast and you, know, you yourself are thinking about these sectors and looking to address them. So you know, thank you from the entire community that's working hard to effectively, you know, make this uh, an industry worth growing. So I appreciate that. But it's been great fun. Thank you. And uh, to my viewers and listeners, thank you for listening to us today. Slaves to the Algo is available on YouTube, Spotify, Google, and Pod Apple Podcasts. We release a new episode every week, sometimes more frequently. We're trying to get, as Unmir said, into different kinds of industries and different ways in which data and algos is being used to change our lives. And if you really like this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And remember that we are living in the world of data. We are living in the age of AI, but we, none of us want to be slaves to the algo, whether you're in sports or in any other industry. See you all next week. Thank you.